Hello, Amen Bible Study. Once again, we come today in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 30, to the fourth section of Matthew's Gospel. And um, we have already looked in, at the prelude in chapters 1 through 4, the royal heir, this birth of Jesus and inauguration of his ministry. Then we've looked at the royal law in the second section of Jesus's ministry as given by Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Then in chapters 8 through 10, we look at the royal mission culminating in this major discourse that we looked at last week in Matthew 10 on the mission that Jesus took on for himself and also commissioned his 12 apostles to continue and commissioned us to continue to this very day. And then today, in chapter 11, we come to the royal method. How is Jesus going to carry out this mission in the population that he comes to, whether it's the lost sheep of the house of Israel in that first century setting, or whether it is Memphis, Tennessee in our 21st century setting? Well, what he tells us about that population is true of our population as well, that it's not easy to persuade people then or now that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. The king has come, and we want to make that message clear, and we want to see it have fruit. And so we look at Matthew 11 as we build up to this next discourse at the method that Jesus um, models and messages to his followers on how to carry out this mission. You'll note that uh, the verse uh, that we begin with, chapter 11, verse 1, is familiar. It's the second instance of a phrase that in fact provides an organizing principle for the entire Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So he had instructed them, he was going to be at work, he sent them out to be at work, and this mission was ongoing. But we'll come then, um, we, we make a change here within Matthew's gospel because of that phrase, now when fi Jesus had finished saying these things. We found the first instance of that expression in chapter um, 7, verse 28. It was the end of the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. Here, um, 11, verse 1, provides the end of the second discourse um, that we looked at last week on chapter 10. In 1353, we'll see the same um, phrase or expression for the end of this third discourse um, in 1353. In chapter 19, verse 1, it ends the fourth discourse. And in chapter 26, verse 1, uh, the same expression. And when Jesus finished the, these sayings, ends the fifth section and will lead into the epilogue or the postlude of Matthew's gospel, um, the royal exploits, where Jesus wins his spurs. When Jesus does all of that, that he had said he had come to fulfill, well, then he suffers, he bleeds, he dies on the cross, and he is raised from the dead for our justification. Thanks be to God. So, I'm telling you a little bit about the structure, and that's a problem, isn't it, with several of us teaching uh, Matthew's gospel for you in this semester. Uh, you don't have a maybe quite as unified and coherent uh, impression of the gospel because we all have our slightly different ways of looking at it, but but that's my story and I'm sticking to that and I hope it'll help you to see those five repetitions of the expression that separates these different um, sayings from one another. All right, so we move on. Um, in the third discourse, uh, we will not find it until chapter 13, but we lead up to that third discourse 
in Matthew's introduction to it, where we see Jesus's royal method for how he's going to carry on um, this ministry. And we learn in chapter 11 that we look at today that that population that Jesus is reaching and that we are reaching still, a population of humanity, is characterized by doubt. We're not, we don't find it easy to persuade these people that Jesus is the King of Kings, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who has come to reclaim the planet that is in rebellion against him. So, um, we need to take a look here at the doubt. And by way of setting you up for the doubt, I'd like to uh, remind you of a section from uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I say remind you because I'm assuming almost all of you are familiar with it. Whether you're religious or not religious, it's just part of English literature. And John Bunyan, this wonderful Christian um, from the 17th century, he wrote this picture of the Christian life and of the sanctification that it involves under the similitude of a dream. And this is a dream in which uh, a man flees from the city devoted to destruction. He, he begins to follow Jesus. He comes to the hill of the cross. His burden is thrown down from his back, and he goes through many, many difficulties and dangers in order to reach the celestial city. This Christian has a traveling companion for a lot of his pilgrimage whose name is Hopeful. And good grief, you couldn't want a better companion than Hopeful. But as they are on the King's Highway making their way to Celestial City, um, they get off track. They, they climb over the stile to get onto the softer ground and they leave the King's Highway. They find themselves on the grounds of giant despair who finds them sleeping there and picks them up by the scruffs of their necks and takes them off to his castle, fittingly called Doubting Castle. And there he throws them into the irons, he pummels them, he beats them because they shouldn't be trespassing, and yet they won't give up um, their hope and die, which he has encouraged them to do. He's, tried, he's supplied them with knives to just kill yourselves rather than going through these beatings. But they won't give up. They keep praying, they keep hoping, and um, good for them. Now, there was not far from the place where they lay a castle called Doubting Castle, the owner whereof was Giant Despair, and it was in his grounds that they were now sleeping. Wherefore, he, getting up in the morning early and walking up and down in his fields, caught Christian and Hopeful asleep in his grounds. He beat them, like, for days, and it was just terrible for them. He, he was amazed that they hadn't committed suicide. He talked to his wife about it, and she thought, well, they must still have some hope. Maybe they've got something hidden that they think they can pick a lock and get out of here. And so Giant Despair says, well, I'll check in the morning, and I'll make sure that they don't. Well, that very night, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in passionate speech, what a fool I am to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And sure enough, it would. The promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. And when he remembered the promises, then he confessed his sin. He was forgiven for his sin. He cried for help. He was given help. And so he and Hopeful escaped from giant despair. And they decided that they needed to erect a pillar uh, by the style that led into the grounds of giant despair. And so they wrote this sentence. Over this style is the way to Doubting Castle, which is kept by giant despair, who despises the king of the celestial country and seeks to destroy his holy pilgrims. Well, we can be grateful for that warning, but that warning makes me ask you this question. 
Is doubt a sin? Is it sin to doubt? We think of doubting Thomas. And Jesus didn't exactly call it sin, but he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. But he presented Thomas with evidence that showed that, yes, I am that Jesus who died on the cross. Put your hands on uh, your fingers on my hands and feel the holes where the nails have left their imprint. Re reach into my side, touch my side, where there is still the hole from the spear of the Roman centurion at the cross. He, he lets Thomas examine the evidence. And he's let us examine evidence as well. But is all doubt sin? Let's listen as we come to um, a, a different treatment of doubt, not as old as Pilgrim's Progress, but one that I have found to be very, very much helpful. And it is from Oz Guinness in his book entitled Into Minds. The title for the book is explained at the very beginning when he says, What is doubt? Well, our English word doubt comes from the Latin dubitari, which is rooted in an Aryan word meaning to. So we can start by defining our terms like this. To believe is to be in one mind about accepting something as true. To disbelieve is to be in one mind about rejecting it. But to doubt is to waver between the two. To believe and disbelieve at once and so to be in two minds. In James chapter 1, we see this understanding of doubt, that you're a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways, tossed back and forth on the ways. If you ask God for wisdom and then you don't believe that you've received it, you've got to be of one mind, trusting in the promises of God. So, but is it sin to doubt? This is something else that uh, Osgina says that I found to be very helpful. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, nor is it the same as unbelief. Doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief, so that it is neither of them wholly, and it is each only partly. This distinction is absolutely vital because it uncovers and deals with the first major misconception of doubt, the idea that in doubting, a believer is betraying faith and surrendering to unbelief. We can admit our doubts. We should admit our doubts. We need to be honest about them, and we need to know how, to we, how do we confront them? How do we deal with them? That's what we come to today in, Acts, um, in, Acts, in Matthew chapter 11, when we look at three kinds of doubt, a taxonomy of doubt. And by looking at this taxonomy of doubt that Jesus gives us here, and that Matthew gives us as he tells the story of Jesus, it helps us be able to identify those kinds of doubt in ourselves and in those around us so that we know how best to respond to each kind of doubt. All right, so three kinds of doubt. The first of which um, I want to um, say for you is treatable doubt. We have treatable doubt, we have terminal doubt, and we have temporary doubt. The first of these is treatable doubt. I want to read for us then um, this first section um, of verses 1 through, uh, wow, there are so many different ways to go here. Let's just go with 1 through 6 now, and we'll come take them one at a time. This is the first of the types of treatable doubt. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. 
and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As I've said, we're looking at treatable doubt. That'll go all the way through verse 19, but I want you to look at the ABCs of treatable doubt. And A kind of treatable doubt is emotional doubt. It is a doubt that Os Guinness in his book calls a coup d'etat from within, that our emotions grab us and get the best of it. It's a, it's a kind of doubt that is um, brought about by our circumstances that cause us to doubt whether Jesus really is our Savior. He really is great enough to do all things. He really is good enough to care for us. Then why am I suffering like this? And surely that must have been what John the Baptist was thinking as he was in um, Herod's prison, um, getting ready to lose his head, as it turns out. He's going to have his head. He's going to be beheaded. But he's been languishing in prison, and he's expecting more from Jesus. And so far, he hadn't seen it. So he sends some of his disciples who he's called to the prison and said, hey, would you go ask Jesus, are you the one? I thought you were. Are you the one? Or is there someone else coming? And so um, they took off and went to do just that. Well, um, the emotional doubt from Jesus here uh, is he understands the question. He does not rebuke him for his sin. He doesn't tell John uh, the Baptist that you've really blown it now. You've gone over into unbelief and I don't want to have anything more to do with you. No, he's going to say something very different about John because he understands that this is an emotional doubt just caused by the hard times. And the message of Jesus back to John with this kind of doubt and the message that I give to my heart in this kind of doubt and the message I encourage you to give to your own hearts and to the hearts of those that you work with in discipleship and trying to encourage them is that when they seem to be um, experiencing a revolt of their emotions against what they have believed. Hang in there. Hang in there. Don't give up. Don't doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. And recognize that this isn't fatal doubt. This is an emotional doubt, and it can pass. The B variety of doubt that we find here is intellectual doubt. And Jesus says this, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Believe. John, believe. John's disciples, believe. Look at the evidence. Look at Go tell John what you've just seen. When as I've been going about teaching and preaching, and doing miracles, what have you seen? Well, you've seen the blind receive their sight. You've seen the lame walk. You've seen lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. And now go read Isaiah 35 once again and see what that chapter has to say to us, as well as so many other chapters in Isaiah as well. But particularly, let's look at that chapter and see what we are to expect when the royal king comes, the royal heir, when a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, what will it be like? Well, how will we know when he's here? Isaiah says, um, sorry, he says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. 
Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Jesus is just telling John, John, look at the evidence. Yes, I am the one who is to come. I may not be going on your timetable, and I may not be filling exactly your preconceived notion of what the Messiah is, but I am fulfilling the Old Testament's preconceived notion of what the Messiah is. And these signs that no one could do unless God were with him, I am doing. So hang in there and believe. Believe the evidence. So Jesus doesn't chide John. He gives him evidence to bolster his faith and to help um, address his doubt. There's a C kind of doubt here in this first category of treatable doubt, and that is volitional doubt. And we come to that in verse 7, and we track it all the way until verse 19. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. So first we have the words of John, and then we have words to John, and now we have words about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. So what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you wouldn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. Because John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. I call this volitional doubt because it's not a doubt that is instigated by unruly emotions. It is not a doubt that is instigated by intellectual shortcomings or misgivings. It's not a doubt that is based on research and on evidence. It's a doubt that is based on choice, on one choosing not to believe rather than choosing to believe. The cities of Galilee that had seen the bulk of Jesus's mighty works or his miracles chose not to believe in him. Not because there was no evidence. Are you kidding me? There was tons of evidence. It was Nicodemus who said in John chapter 3, Master, we know you must be sent from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God were with him. And that's so true. These are supernatural acts that have no explanation by magic or a sleight of hand, by anything that a human being could contrive. These are suspensions of the laws of nature. They go supernatural to demonstrate that only God could pull this off. So listen to this prophet who is speaking in his name, whether any of the Old Testament prophets who were vindicated by their miracles or by Jesus vindicated by his exceptional miracles. This is the Son of God. You've got evidence. It's not because you're tired or upset that you're 
um, allowing your doubt to reign. It's rather because of your choice, and you need to take that very seriously. Woe to you, um, we read. Woe to you um, for what you have um, looked at. All right, so I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry. The, the, where, the where we stopped off was with what are they going to do um, with Jesus? Uh, how are they going to respond to John the Baptist? How are they going to respond to God's word that he has given to them so far? And the truth is that um, they're not responding um, terribly well. The answer for someone who's dealing with volitional doubt is repent. Yes, sometimes doubt can be a sin. If you're halted between two opinions and the evidence is overwhelmingly pushing you one way and you know you need to go there, you've, you know, you've had time to, to be consoled. People have been patient with you in your emotional doubt. They have given you more evidence. They've reminded you of where you started. You've studied yourself and you realize it. And you still don't get off the dime and get off the doubt. It's become volitional. You need to repent from that. But it's still treatable doubt. It's not necessarily sin. It's not outright unbelief. Now, we do come to outright unbelief in the very next verse. And we move from treatable doubt to terminal doubt. This is deadly, and it can kill you. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus has gone beyond mere warnings here. He has gone um, to dire predictions of their terminal state. That maybe there's a hope of repentance here, but it seems to have almost gotten too far because despite the abundant evidence that these cities had seen of him, they choose not to believe. And that was deadly there in the cities of Galilee, verses 20 to 22. It was deadly then, back in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, also reflected on in Ezekiel chapter 16, and that's in verses 23 and 24. And then it's even more deadly here and now, as the summaries in verses 22 and 24 make very clear. So, you cities of Galilee that have seen my mighty works, it'll be better for you in pagan Tyre and Sidon over in Phoenicia, on the day of judgment than it will be for you because of what you have seen and rejected. They didn't have as much evidence and therefore they will not be held to quite as strict a judgment. There will be variations of judgment just as there will be variations of reward. And um, we need to remember and recall that. So you who have seen, we're gonna have the higher judgment. We need to be very careful um, that we don't miss out on that. As verse 22 makes clear, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And then verse 24, that uh, archetypal wicked city of uh, Sodom is said to uh, be better off. It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom, verse 24, than for you. It was dangerous then, it was dangerous there, and it is even more dangerous here and now. Be careful 
with terminal doubt. Once you get it, you're, you're gone beyond the pale. And so if you think you've got it, if you're even close, repent. Turn back to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I know better. I'm going to change my ways because I know you are the king above all kings. Third kind of doubt we encounter next in verse 25, and that is the kind that we all want to have. It's temporary doubt. We're going to have doubts. We will face them. We'll have uh, attacks on our faith, stimulated by the world around us, stimulated by the devil himself, but we hope it's only temporary. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is temporary doubt. And the reason that this doubt is only temporary is twofold. Uh, reason A, why, why is this not as bad as um, terminal doubt? Why is this temporary doubt? It's because of the grace of your Father in heaven. The grace of your Father in heaven. And that's in verses 25 and 26. Jesus just erupts into praise to God. Father, he calls him, and he calls him our Father as well. We are to pray with him, our Father. I thank you that you have hidden these things. My identity is the true Son of God and the one who is to come. Um, you've hidden it from the wise and the understanding. Read in perhaps the Pharisees, the enemies of Jesus who were in that terminal doubt. You've hidden it from them, but you've revealed these truths to little children, my disciples. They're little children. They're called little children not because of their innocence. No, they're not innocent. They're called little children um, not because of their sincerity and the naivete. No, that's not little children. Little children are born in sin just as old people have sin. But little children have the advantage of being dependent. They're completely dependent on others to provide for them, to care for them, to protect them. And we become like little children when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and we ask him to do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, help us repent. Help us believe. We believe. Help us in our unbelief. And so we become humble like little insignificant children. Well, um, thank you, Father, that you have done that. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Your gracious will, the grace of God, is what has revealed these truths to us as Christ's little children. And not anything in us that we figured it out ourselves, we're better than other people. No, there's only one reason why you are today a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and your next door neighbor is not. If your next door neighbor is not, maybe your next door neighbor is, but if you are and another is not, don't you look down your nose on that other and say, well, I guess just a little more humble than, than she was. Or I guess I'm a little smarter. I've read my Bible a little bit better. I understood it better. I guess I just came from a better background. I've been more religious and that makes me better. And Nope. 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 The only reason that you are today a follower of the Lord Jesus and your next door neighbor is not is only by the grace of God. So 
rejoice with your Lord Jesus that the Heavenly Father has revealed this to you as a helpless little child that you would have never figured out for yourself. But that's not the only source of this um, temporary doubt. It's also temporary doubt, not only because of the grace uh, of our Father, but it's also temporary doubt because of our trust in His Son. That there is a human component to this. That there is something that we do to overcome doubt and to make it temporary. And that is what Jesus has to say in verse 27. 20, uh, 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The two explanations of our temporary doubt um, coincide well with two different verses in John chapter 6. And then you may want to read that chapter, especially that part where Jesus is discoursing about being the bread of life, in order to see the two sides, uh, this tension of divine sovereignty and yet human responsibility, of predestination and yet of our free choice. For we see both in, in John. The, the grace of our Father is in John 6, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. We're completely dependent upon the Father to draw us. And then we also have John 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never draw, drive away. Whosoever will may come. And so if we think, oh, there's nothing I can do to overcome my doubt, we're wrong. There is something we can do. Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me. That's how we overcome our doubt, is by coming to Jesus, by seeking his face, by getting back into his presence and recognizing once again, this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The evidence is overwhelmingly for him, not only the scriptural evidence, but the evidence historically and culturally, looking at the history of the world and the impact that he has made where his gospel has become dominant, even if it's only temporarily dominant, but also even our own lives. We know he's good. He's been good to us, and so we need to come to him again. You know, um, when I looked at this uh, passage once earlier in my ministry, and I was looking at our hymnals at that time, the Trinity Hymnal from the PCA and the Hymns for the Living Church from Hope Publishing Company, and in both of those hymnals, looking at the Scripture Index in the rear, the most used verse or text of Scripture as the basis for a hymn was Matthew 11, 28, through 38 times, eight different hymns reflecting on um, that invitation from Jesus, which is incredible. Now, in our 2PC hymnal, um, not so much. We don't see that one as much. Actually, what's the greatest scripture text? It's Galatians 6.14. I'll let you look that up to find out why that might be. It's a great scripture text to be uh, emphasized in our hymnal, but the reason I think that we moved away from Matthew 28 is so many of those hymns were just maudlin sentimentality, but they don't have to be. Softly and tenderly, Jesus' calling can be very maudlin, but if you've ever seen the film A Trip to Bountiful, um, you'll know that the, uh, the musical score is tied to that hymn, and it's, it's a great um, 
picture of our walking with Jesus, our finding solace, our finding comfort in a response to Jesus. The composer who wrote that film score had only become a believer about a year ahead of that time. I know this from a conference in Charlottesville that I attended years ago. I had a number of composers there who were Christians, and they knew this guy, and they were reflecting on how his meditations on Scripture and on the hymnody that he was beginning to learn affected his work as a musician in Hollywood and in other places as well. Three kinds of doubt. There's treatable doubt. We can get over it. There's also terminal doubt, that it's very difficult to get over and we need to flee it. And there's also temporary doubt, that we can get over by the grace of God and by the trust that we put in Him. So, we come then to our conclusion. Uh, and we know from this conclusion that doubt is not sin. Or I've already made that point, I want to make it again now. Doubt is not necessarily sin. Blaise Pascal, 17th century mathematician, philosopher, um, had this to say in his pensée about two different kinds of doubt. I can only have compassion for those who sincerely bewail their doubt, who regard it as the greatest of misfortunes, and who, sparing no effort to escape it, make of this inquiry their principal and most serious occupations. That's pensée number 194. He's talking about soft agnosticism. The agnosticism that says, I don't know. Oh, Pascal says, I, you don't know. Yeah, oh, we all feel that. So go study. Go look for the evidence. Go examine so that you can know. You don't know. That's okay. But that is vincible ignorance. You can begin to know. On the other hand, there is hard agnosticism, and that says, we can't know. I know that I can't know anything, and agnosticism in that form is obviously self-defeating. Oh, you can know for sure that you can't know anything for sure? You can see that that's a problem to say that. But soft agnosticism, of course, if we have doubts, we need to face them honestly and we need to um, research them vigorously in order to get our faith back. And then that brings me back to Oz Guinness again, who has this very helpful conclusion for us in his book on... Um, into minds, the dilemma of doubt. He calls it the square one principle. Life can proceed with deceptive ease on the basis of a faith which was once vital but has become so taken for granted that it is no longer authentic. At that stage, any pressure may be such a test for faith that the believer is faced with a choice. Give up or go back to square one. If we give up, then we abandon faith altogether. But if we go back to square one, and so, back to our roots, back to our foundations, back to our beginning, we will find a faith which is solid and secure. The lesson of the square one principle is this. The person who has the courage to go back when necessary is the one who goes on in the end. Jesus' method in dealing with people is to look at their doubts and to classify those doubts and to encourage us to deal with different people having different kinds of doubts in different ways. But the chief way that we see in the conclusion of this chapter is, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What is your kind of doubt? What are you doing about it to address it don't just sweep it under the rug. Come to Jesus about it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do come to you now. 
And we ask that you might help us not only be hearers of your word, but doers also. Lead each one of us to that application which we need most in this particular time of our lives. And may you be glorified by those around us and even by our own souls within us when we recognize that we've changed, that you are changing us from doubt to trust by your grace. In your own name, Lord Jesus, we pray, for there is none higher. Amen.